Since the summer, teachers unions have led the effort to prevent U.S. schools from reopening, in some cases filing lawsuits demanding that instruction remain remote. Many parents, however, are desperate for schools to reopen and have filed their own lawsuits demanding in-person instruction. One case involving a religious private school ordered to close by the state of Kentucky may even be headed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Can a credible case be made that students have a right to in-person instruction even as COVID-19 continues to surge? And will states soon face new limits on their power to keep private schools closed to control the virus's spread? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Josh Dunn, professor of political science at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and legal beat columnist for Education Next. His latest article, as unions and public officials push to keep schools closed, parents fight back. Will appear in the spring 2021 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Josh, welcome back to the Ednext podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So we'll get to this new case out of Kentucky in a moment, but your article takes a broad look at efforts by parents to get their kids back in schools. And you start with cases involving special education students. Why do you think these students were the focus of the earliest litigation demanding in-person instruction? So I think there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one, the special education students and, and particularly their parents tend to be well organized uh, and have resources available. And so when, when their children are not receiving the services uh, that they think they should, they, they have the capacity to capacity to, to resist and to, and to fight back. So that's one. Uh, another reason is that they do have statutorily grounded rights. Uh, so most of these students are gonna have individualized education plans. And so under the law, uh, they're entitled to this. And I think that gives them a lot more leverage than if you're making a broader claim based on the constitution, which uh, courts are gonna be uh, less likely to be receptive to in, in general. If there's a clear statutory claim that they can rest on, they feel more comfortable with it. And in fact, in the earliest days of the closures last March, I believe some districts were concerned about providing education to any students at all if they were not able to continue providing students with special needs the free appropriate public education they were entitled to. I think the U.S. Department of Education, after initially encouraging that confusion in some ways later, clarified and told districts to move forward anyways. But that dynamic was also in response to this situation you described, that there is there a statutory right to a free appropriate public education that puts these parents in a position to press a claim in court. Right. Yes. Yeah, school districts are well aware of these parents uh, who they've already had negotiations with them often. They, they've gone in for you know special hearings uh, quite often. Sometimes they brought attorneys. And so they know that these parents are ready to, uh, to fight for what they believe their children are entitled to. And so when there was this question of, can we even provide education because it might not satisfy what's necessary for kids with, uh, with special needs, there were, there were school districts that were worried about that. Like if we, if we provide online or remote instruction, if that's not actually satisfactory for children with an IEP, then they could be in legal jeopardy. That was, that was their concern. But then, as you said, the Department of Education, uh, they, uh, they, have some blame for creating the confusion, but then tried to walk it back. And tell us about the largest of these efforts. I believe it has its origins in New York City. What exactly are the parents asking for? 
All right, so they're asking for a range of things. Uh, so it, it has started in New York City, so it was primarily filed against the mayor uh, and school district uh, in, 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 New York, in New York City. But then it's spread out. I think they have plaintiffs now from 30 to 35 states. I, I haven't uh, taken a look over the past couple of weeks, but they keep increasing the number of, of students. And so one thing that they want is to compensation essentially for the cost that they say they incurred in the months immediately after COVID in the shutdown. So, you know, March until the end of uh, the last academic school year. They're saying that, there's, that their children were not provided uh, what they needed to be provided for. And so their parents had to incur extra costs. So they wanna be compensated for that. Uh, and then moving forward, then they want the, the schools to then provide what they think that they're entitled to in addition to any additional costs uh, that the parents might have incurred because whatever the school districts have done since the start of this most recent academic year, say August until now, they, they've regarded as not being uh, satisfactory. And how likely are they to succeed? So I think that the claims uh, focusing on say March to the end of the last academic school year are less likely to succeed. We are, we're, we're after all in the middle of a pandemic that no one really saw coming at least until January or February and uh, no one knew exactly how dangerous it was. And so I think courts are going to be sympathetic to the claims of school districts uh, that, it was, uh, that it was appropriate for them to be cautious uh, considering the unknown nature of the threat. Um, because you can obviously uh, sacrifice people's rights in times of great crisis. Uh, and courts have, courts have made that clear that they might not have the same full effect that they would normally have. I think that the claims based on this most recent academic year, depending on the context, uh, they, they have some reasonable chance of success. So there might be places around the country where there's essentially been no in-person education. Uh, and so students with an IEP have not had an opportunity, even if they perhaps receive services under their IEP, if there's not actually in-person instruction, which they would regard as an essential part of, of the mainstreaming of students with, uh, with special needs, then they could make, then they could make another uh, a claim based on that. Um, combine that with the fact that the more we learn about COVID, the, the, the less risky it seems to open up schools. Um, so I think those, those actually have a reasonable chance, at least in some, in some places. And I guess there are two ways to win when it comes to education litigation. One is to win your case in court. Right. The other is to have the threat of a victory change the facts on the ground. And I think you have seen a lot of school districts start to prioritize students with special needs in their reopening plans. Those plans may not be as fast as many parents would like, but I assume that that could be a byproduct of this litigation effort. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's the continuation of politics by other means. You're trying to create bad press and political pressure uh, and put it on, on school districts. And I do, th I do think that's the case. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've seen that elsewhere. And I do know that there are school districts that from the very beginning have recognized this and have taken great care to try and provide something uh, and as much as possible for their special needs kids. Certainly here in Colorado Springs, that was, uh, that was the case. But in other places around the country, um, yeah, they, they exercise even more precaution and that put them perhaps in some legal jeopardy going forward, right? Again, with this academic year, they, they might be in trouble. Uh, but yes, you're right. That a, a big part of this, I think, is political strategy. Now, another category of cases is more general and based on state education clauses. That is the provisions in state constitutions directing the government to provide a public education to all children. 
you write that the logic of these cases is similar to that of the adequacy cases that school finance reformers have used to win court orders of additional funding for K-12 schools. How so? Right, so the basic claims of adequacy uh, are that states are required to provide an, uh, an adequate education for every, every child. And part of that, as we've seen with adequacy litigation, or the most substantial part is focused on, on funding. But the logic of it extends beyond to that. And we've seen that with adequacy cases where they've addressed things that aren't just necessarily related to funding. It could involve pedagogical strategies or even what kind of literacy program you're trying to use in, in, in elementary school. Uh, so the adequacy claims are broader than just money. And so states where you have had their highest courts, their, their Supreme Courts, say that the Constitution does require that every child receive an adequate education, I think you could make a plausible claim, uh, as long as you accept the, the, the reasonableness of adequacy claims in general, uh, that not having schools open for in-person instruction uh, is not providing an adequate education and therefore violating the state, con the, the, the state Constitution. And the first of these cases, the one you discuss in the article in the journal, as I understand it, comes out of Stillwater, Oklahoma. And you say that that's not a very good thing for the plaintiffs because Oklahoma is one of those states where the state Supreme Court has actually said, no, our constitution does not guarantee a specific judicially enforceable guarantee of adequacy. But maybe there could be more hope for success in other settings. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So Oklahoma is, is not an ideal uh, state for this kind of litigation, but who knows, maybe they'll have some success uh, with this. I, ten I tend, to, tend to doubt it. But yes, in other states where they've been successful uh, with adequacy claims, I, I think the, there would be a decent chance of success. Once again, as evidence comes in showing that opening up schools is not particularly risky, say, in fact, a very low, low risk environment. Um, and when you can show that there is significant learning loss associated with remote instruction for, for many students, uh, you, you could make a, a reasonable claim. And I know, in fact, that people are considering this in states where there have been successful adequacy suits, because once the article came out, I actually got an email from an attorney considering it in, in, in one of these states. And that gets us to private schools, which in some states have been ordered to remain closed alongside their counterparts in the public sector. Most of these cases, including the one out of Kentucky, have involved religious schools who claim that these closure orders interfere with their First Amendment rights to freely exercise their religion. It seems surprising to me that they could have a case here, as my understanding is that a generally applicable rule is okay as long as it's neutral between religious and non-religious institutions. And I'd imagine that this is particularly the case when the rule in question is aimed at stopping a pandemic. So is the argument that religious private schools are advancing that the rules that states are putting in place are not in fact neutral with respect to religion? I, that's their primary claim, that it's not neutral to, even when it includes all schools, that it in fact it is not neutral because most of these uh, closure orders uh, still allow other kinds of entities to remain open, right? So for instance, in the case in Kentucky, they mentioned that yeah, the University of Kentucky has allowed to have basketball games where you have three to 4,000 people in attendance. And of course, Kentucky, maybe that is the state religion is, uh, is basketball. So, um, uh, and U University of Louisville, the same thing. And then they mentioned that there's strip clubs that are uh, open and all, all sorts of other places that people are allowed to go to 
but schools are singled out. And because of the religious mission of the schools, it then infringes upon their, their, their free exercise claims. And they're also arguing that as you look, you look at the schools, they tend to be much smaller. Uh, they have lower class sizes. And so it's sweeping with too broad of a brush and excluding them uh, from the opportunity to pursue their religious, uh, religious mission when they otherwise could be safe in doing so. I guess the question is, what comparison do we make when we're trying to apply the principle of neutrality? Do we just apply it to anything with the label of a K-12 school, in which case the public schools are the natural comparison? Or do we think about the nature of the activity in the schools, in which case we might broaden it to universities, to early childhood education centers, or to the types of establishments that you just mentioned? Right. So... Uh... The, the, this I think points to something else that I think is going on with with these cases is that the 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 states I think are relying on this case employment division versus Smith which is where the court reestablished this principle of neutrality that uh, neutral laws uh, of general applicability are fine right as long as you aren't singling people out for uh, religious discrimination there's been a lot of um, I think dissatisfaction with that ruling, particularly on the right uh, and among and among conservatives, and there's been some suspicion that there that the conservatives on the court today would like to overturn employment division versus uh, employment division versus Smith, and I I think that if you, if you look at in fact the briefs that were filed before Justice Kavanaugh since he's um, appointed over the Sixth Circuit, uh, which includes Kentucky, um, the state's response doesn't even mention employment division versus Smith. Um, it's indicating that they, that they think, uh, I mean, they were trying to make other arguments, but I think they suspect that it's dangerous actually to, uh, to, uh, to rely on that. So let's pin down exactly where this case in Kentucky is. As I understand the facts of the case, Danville Christian Academy is a private school serving about 230 students in grades K-12. They're not happy with an order that Democratic Governor Andy Bashir's issued shuttering all K-12 schools, both public and private. And they, with the support of the Republican Attorney General in the state, have filed this lawsuit in federal court. It has made its way to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals that did not decide to issue a stay lifting the order. And they've now appealed that decision to the Supreme Court. Is that right? And, right. and what happens next? Yeah, so at the district court, they actually did uh, uh, agree with the Christian school and issue a temporary injunction, um, uh, indicating that they thought that the school was likely to win on the merits. And then the, the Court of Appeals overturned that. And so now it's before uh, Justice Kavanaugh, and he has to decide whether or not to overturn that, that uh, overturning of the, the lower court and then wait for the Supreme Court to decide, uh, decide the full case. Um, so that's, yes, that's where, that's where things stand now. Uh, and so we, I, I assume, you know, the, he asked for a response from the state, uh, for last Friday and, uh, they submitted it. And so I assume we should hear any time now, uh, what his decision is going what his decision is going to be. And how does this decision relate to, and how is it influenced by the Supreme court's recent decisions involving cases in New York and California, I believe dealing with restrictions on religious services? Right. So, uh, of course, the state is arguing that it's different, uh, that the principles are separate uh, because there the, the, the Supreme Court argued that, that religious institutions, churches, synagogues were singled out for disparate treatments. Uh, and it quite, it, I think most importantly, 
uh, it's not that the state couldn't regulate how many people could go to a religious religious service. Is that they weren't using the least restrictive means possible, and that's that's another criteria. There has to be a compelling government interest. If you're going to restrict someone's rights, there has to be a compelling government interest, and the government has to use the least restrictive means possible. And in New York, they they argue that they weren't they weren't doing that, so it didn't matter. I think you could have a huge uh, venue and only ten people could attend. Um, and so there was no uh, even attempt to try and accommodate them. The other thing that was going on, this is also going on in the Kentucky case as well, they, they modified that New York order that essentially then kind of lifted it, right, for, for those religious congregations. And that didn't satisfy the Supreme Court either because they said, well, you can just come and reissue the order. So it'll be like whack-a-mole, right? You'll just keep issuing the uh, new restrictions and then you'll take them off. You'll be playing a game with us. Something similar is going on here in Kentucky where the, the state is arguing, well, look, uh, that's separate, right? Because we have, a, we have a, a neutral rule that applies to all schools. So that's the, that's the first, both uh, secular and, and religious. And uh, they're saying that this order only extends for four weeks and that four weeks will now be early January, I believe, something like that. Uh, and so they, you know, it's going to expire. Uh, and so of course the Christian school is arguing, well, no, uh, you're going to have the same situation because they could issue just another rule uh, and regulation preventing uh, preventing us from opening. And the relevant consideration is not just how we're treated compared to other schools, but to other entities that might have similar uh, similar risks as 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 we would have. Um, and so you can't just uh, uh, limit your analysis to, to to just schools. There can still be a free exercise violation. Uh, even if it's a neutral rule just applied to schools, if you're including basketball games, higher education, daycares, um, you know, big lots, you know, Best Buy, whatever it would happen to be, uh, then you could also uh, claim a free exercise violation. So bottom line, what's Justice Kavanaugh likely to do? And uh, I guess, depending on your answer to that question, what will his colleagues on the court do? Yeah, so this is, it's a much, it's a much more difficult uh, case than the New York one, because I think I think the state's case is, is stronger than New York's was, um, primarily because they they can say, look, we are just applying this to all K through 12, uh, K through 12 education. Um, so I, I suspect, I mean, it's, it's difficult to hazard a prediction on this one because of these differences. You know, but if I were forced to choose, I wouldn't have a whole lot of confidence in this, but if I were forced to choose, I would say that Kavanaugh is likely to side with the schools. Um, and then it would get sent to the rest of the, uh, the court. I think that would probably mean that Kavanaugh thinks that he has four other justices who would, who would agree with him on the ultimate outcome or disposition of, the, uh, uh, of this case. So I, that, that would be my best guess, but you know, it's, it's very close. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't wager a lot of money on it. All right, you're trying to protect yourself. I'm gonna start writing sure. down these predictions though, and right. uh, we're gonna start keeping track and have you come back on and defend yourself if and when you're proven wrong. All right, that sounds good. Yeah, I'm happy, I'm ha you know, we'll see. I'm happy to be proven wrong on, on any of them. I, although I will think, you know, there are other, the, there's several other cases like this that now have emerged. There's just a case filed yesterday in Ohio, similar kinds of, similar kinds of claims. Uh, and so it's going to keep uh, keep going. Um, and so I think that even if Kavanaugh doesn't side with with the schools in this case, that still uh, you're going to have parents and schools be able to to use litigation as a political lever. 
My guest today has been Josh Dunn, professor at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and the Legal Beat columnist for Education Next. You can find his latest column at educationnext.org. Josh, thanks for being part of the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.